you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. In the first part of this episode, I introduced most of the main players in California's Cult of the Great Eleven. The cult, led by May Otis Blackburn and her daughter Ruth Wheeland, was active throughout the 1920s. This part will detail the beliefs of the cult and the legal proceedings against the cult, as well as the revelations that came to light as a result. This is episode 97, and this is the second part of the story of the Cult of the Great Eleven. Arthur Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. I left off in the last episode with William, Martha, and Willa Rhodes moving from Portland, Oregon to Los Angeles. There are a few other events I probably should have mentioned before that, though. In July of 1924, the seventh trumpet of Gabriel finally came out. Well, sort of. Printed by belonging to the Blackburn Printing Company, an outfit belonging to Walter Blackburn, what was released was a series of seven pamphlets of eight pages each. These small booklets were not only short, but printed in in a large typeface as well. The pamphlets were named Do, Re, Mi, Fa, So, La, and Ti. This is a theme of the Great Eleven. These notes are said to represent the seven musical notes of the Horn of Gabriel. The pamphlets were described with amusement by the press. One paper at the time declared that they discussed such phrases as the seven concords of the rainbow, the eleven muscles of the heart of the headstone, and the divine order of the seven sacred dogs. And as the Oakland Tribune said, the text was extremely hard for an ordinary uninitiated mortal to make anything of. There are numerous allusions to the stars, to revelations shortly to be made from a divine quarter concerning precious minerals in the earth, and to the holy osculation of God's body. May and Ruth were visited at their their cult headquarters, at the time 640 South Manhattan Place off Wilshire Boulevard, and several other cult members were met with as well. The reporters were told the story of how May Otis and Ruth Whelan came to write their great book. For years, they heard, both May and Ruth had heard singing. One morning, on her way home from work, a voice spoke to Ruth, and three days later, the same voice spoke to May. Three days after this, The archangel Gabriel appeared to the women and told them they were the two witnesses described in the book of Revelations. As said in the first part, he was going to dictate to them a book. The beliefs of the Great Eleven are a confusing mishmash of theosophy and hermeticism, 
a bit of apocalypse, and just a smidgen of paganism, all wrapped up in a wealth of delusions. The influence of Martha Rhodes on cult doctrine can be debated. Certainly, after her arrival in Los Angeles, the cult began to take on features of a Christian science practice and an emphasis on healing and resurrection. These hadn't been features before that. The life force of the universe, according to May, was time. The universe, she said, was constantly destroyed and then renewed. The tree of life, which the Bible mentions as having grown in the Garden of Eden, was both a physical tree and also a piece of metaphysical machinery through which this process was achieved. But the fall of Adam and Eve somehow broke the tree, so the universe had stagnated and was stuck in an old version of itself. The tree also seems to have been thought of as the source of time, which had supposedly stopped properly working. The great eleven of the cult's title were eleven queens. May and Ruth, of course, were two of these, and then there were nine others. According to her, one of Gabriel's revelations was that the eleven queens would each be granted a palace on Olive Hill in Hollywood, now Barnesdale Park. Each would be granted eleven husbands and a portion of a grand treasure revealed by the archangel to be hidden near Bakersfield. The eleven high priestesses would repair the Tree of Life, get the universe working again, and get time flowing again. The touch of hermeticism comes through the emphasis May placed on what she termed concords. This could be seen as conceptually similar to the hermetic ideal of as above, so below. Certain things in our reality had a correspondence to a more metaphysical or spiritual counterpart. In this way, for example, Olive Hill, site of the priestess's future palaces, was concorded to the Mount of Olives, and Los Angeles was concorded to the Garden of Eden. The term also referred to magical spells, workings, or rituals the cult conducted at their various temples, or to magical titles granted to cult members. May, for example, had the Concord Heel of God, and Ruth, the royal warder of the Purple Robes. Willa Rhodes, significantly, was referred to as the Tree of Life, which may have bearings on things that took place later, but that will have to wait until the rest of her story is told. Both of these other meanings could be seen as extensions of that hermetic ideal. It was apparently around the time of the pamphlet's publication that Ruth's marriage to Sam Rizzio started to break down. Started to break down, and then, at a certain point, nobody saw Sam Rizzio again. After Sam was missing for a few weeks, his sister Frances went to the Blackburn Printing Company's offices at 1028 South Olive Street, but found them vacant. When she went to May and Ruth's house, she was told that Sam had hit Ruth and took off. They hadn't seen him since. Frances thought something seemed off, though, and got her brother Frank to take a job as a chauffeur for May, taking the opportunity to do some snooping around. He managed to find some clothes and other items of Sam's. His sister had been told that Sam took everything with him when he left, but little else. November 1924, then, is when the Rhodes family moved and the first episode ended. William later claimed to be rather unenthusiastic about the whole affair saying it was really his wife Martha who was the one sold on the cult. He could take it or leave it. When they arrived, Jenny Blackburn, May's mother, gave Willa Rhodes seven dogs, 
which, like the seven pamphlets, were named Do, Re, Mi, Fa, Sol, La, and Ti. Recall the seven sacred dogs mentioned in the writings released earlier that year. The Great Eleven first came to the attention of authorities in February 1925. Margaret Rowan, a former Seventh-day Adventist and cult leader in her own right, had predicted that the apocalypse would begin at midnight on February 6th. May capitalized on Rowan's prediction of the end of all things, undertaking an ad campaign of sorts for the Seventh Trumpet of Gabriel pamphlets and maintaining that the world would not end at midnight on the appointed day, but merely be reborn. The Rowanites were already under investigation, and with this stunt, an investigation began of the Great Eleven as well. In the end, authorities were satisfied they had no real connection to the Rowanites, though the ads about the renewal of the world were withdrawn. After this, the Great Eleven faded back into the background. The cult had always been a rather clannish one, and while the members didn't live all together in a central compound like some, members did often live near to one another. A dozen cult members might all be neighbors of one another at any given time, for instance. It continued growing, and by 1926, there were almost a hundred members. One of these, and likely the wealthiest, was a man named Clifford Dabney. He was the nephew of J.B. Dabney, a California oil magnate. As an aside, crime author Raymond Chandler, creator of Philip Marlowe, was once vice president of the Dabney Oil Syndicate. May convinced Clifford Dabney to pay for several plots of land in the mountains near Mortimer Park, now called Santa Susana, on which to build a colony. Many members lived in this colony, which May termed Harmony Hamlet. Several still maintained residences in Los Angeles or surrounding towns, however, and the Blackburns themselves lived in Burbank. And all went well. For a while, that is. May, no doubt sensing a cash cow, kept coming to Clifford Dabney with demands for money. It was needed for the book, she said. It was ordered by God that you give me this money. She even managed to con Dabney out of some leases on oil fields he had received from his uncle. At one point, he couldn't even pay for car repairs. But he stayed in the cult, mostly, he said, because he didn't know what the other members might do to him if he quit. But finally, he did quit in 1929 at the urging of his wife, and, one might imagine, his uncle as well. He said it was because May promised all sorts of things that weren't ever done. Almost immediately upon leaving, he filed a number against May Otis Blackburn. May was named as a defendant in the first suit, which sought $4,000. The second suit was filed against Ruth Wheeland, Ward Blackburn, Gail Conde Banks, Mary Stewart, Emily Miller, and the Walter J. Blackburn Printing Company, seeking $17,017. The third again named May Blackburn, Wheeland, Ward Blackburn, Banks, Stewart, and Miller, and sought to repossess 164 acres of land in the Simi Valley on which Harmony Hamlet had been built. A fourth was filed against May Blackburn, seeking the annulment of an oil lease, and finally, a fifth named Mary Stewart, and attempted to get some property foreclosed on. May was no stranger to legal action, having been sued at least three times before. The Los Angeles First National Truist and Savings Bank had sued her on two separate occasions, in 1928 and earlier in 1929, 
and the Hammond Lumber Company had sued her in March 1929 due to a failure to pay them for the lumber they supplied for building the Simi Valley Colony. September 15, 1929, then, is the day that Dabney, his civil suits filed, went to the LAPD Bunko squad with his concerns about the cult. Bunko is a defunct and unused name nowadays, but it referred to the section of the police department dealing with financial crimes, particularly those which involved fraud or gambling. He met with Captain B.W. Thomason and Detectives Edgar Edwards and William Reed. He disclosed that May owed him over $39,000, and technically more than that, since due to his family's business interests, he earned royalty payments on a Huntington Beach oil field, an oil field whose deed he had signed over to May, and who was, in his view, making money that was actually his. The police, though, decided that they couldn't really do too much about it, as he had signed the money over to May willingly, and she hadn't actually robbed him or the like. Nevertheless, they turned it over to the Office of District Attorney Euron Fitz. A deputy district attorney named Charles Kearney got the case and began investigations, but the investigation made little headway for two weeks. Of the other cultists he found, almost all were uncooperative, and those that did cooperate couldn't really tell him much of anything. But on October 1st, 1929, the Detective Bureau got an anonymous tip advising them to look into the death of a woman named Frances Turner, who they asserted had been burnt to death in a ceremony. The death, which had taken place in March 1928, was looked into, but it was ruled as due to a heart ailment, and as all seemed in order, the detective shelved it. It was at this time that E. Raymond Cato, the chief of the Homicide Division, was made aware of the allegations that Turner had been killed. On October 4th, the fact that May Otis Blackburn and Ruth Wheeland had both been charged with 15 counts of grand larceny was made public. In the wake of Clifford Dabney's filings, some other cult members came forward and leveled their own charges of fraud against the mother and daughter. The allegations about Turner's death, though, were not mentioned. But with that story's publication, another anonymous tip came in to detectives. This one mentioned that a girl named Willa Rhodes had died in 1925, but whatever had become of the body was unknown. The caller urged police to question William and Martha Rhodes, at the time residence at 1094 Marco Place in Venice. When Captain Thomason, Detectives Reed and Edwards, and a female police officer named Lula B. Lane arrived at the Rhodes' home, they found that the story was accurate. 16-year-old Willow Rhodes, the Tree of Life, one of the queens of the Great Eleven according to May, had died in January of that year. She fell ill only a month after her family arrived in California, on Christmas Eve 1924, and died on New Year's Day 1925. The story had been put out among the other members that she had moved away either to go to school or to get married, depending. How exactly the caller had known she was actually dead, who can say? Martha Rhodes said she had died of diphtheria. A later autopsy was to reveal that she had died of an abscessed tooth. Both William and Martha attempted to stonewall the police when it came to exactly where the daughter's body was, though. Eventually, Martha broke down and told them the truth. She was buried under the floorboards of the house. Lieutenants Frank Condaffer 
and Jerry Hickey of the Homicide Division arrived to aid in recovery of the body, which was reportedly kept in a copper-lined wooden coffin underneath the floor of William and Martha's bedroom. Not only Willa was buried there either. The seven dogs which were given to her were also buried in their own coffin of similar design. These had reportedly been poisoned. The coffins were discovered to be halfway filled with water. While Willa's body was remarkably well preserved for having been dead for four years, the bodies of the dogs were considerably less so, and in a, quote, revolting condition, according to Reed. William and Martha were both taken into custody, and it was while they sat in prison that the full story of Willa's odyssey came to light. She had died at the cult headquarters at 640 South Manhattan Place. After an incident in which R. Fred Vogel, who was the landlord of the Manhattan Place property, was declared insane only about a week after the death of Willa Rhodes, although Vogel's insanity may or may not be related, Samuel Ford at least believes that it very well might be, and I would tend to agree, especially as the reason for questioning his sanity as given in the Los Angeles Times on January 9th, 1925, was flimsy at best, and basically came down to his wife saying he spent too much money. After that, the Great Eleven moved to a property at 427 North Vermont Avenue. The address was only a few doors away from Vogel's address at 437 North Vermont. The articles detailing Vogel's death in 1929 mentioned that his wife at that time lived at 640 South Manhattan Place, the same premises just vacated by the Great Eleven. By May 1925, the cult had moved again to 2327 Main Street in Santa Monica. Willa's body was moved each time the cult headquarters was moved, and at each address, a vault of sorts was built. At Manhattan Place, she was merely kept in a bedroom, and at the address on Vermont, she was placed in a bathroom which was then walled off from the rest of the house. Her body was being preserved by ice and the application of various spices. In Santa Monica, she was first placed in the copper-lined wooden coffin that she was in when found. A workman named Raymond Viginale grew suspicious of why, exactly, he was delivering nearly 600 pounds of ice to this address weekly. And so... Before Viginale made too many inquiries, the body was moved again, this time to the house at 1094 Marco Place, where it was eventually found. In hindsight, that Willa's body was preserved and kept by the cult is perhaps unsurprising. The timing of her illness and death came only about a month before Margaret Rowan's prophesied apocalypse. And recall the Great Eleven statements that the world would not end on, this day, on that day, but be reborn. According to their cosmology, such a rebirth would have taken place by the repairing of the Tree of Life, and given that Willa's concord was the Tree of Life, it would seem that the resurrection of Willa, for such was the general belief according to Martha Rhodes, although it was rather unclear whether the Great Eleven would actually do anything, or whether her resurrection would just happen, was going to fulfill the rebirth of the world. Also, recall the earlier accusations about Martha Rhodes's having buried a child on her property and her claimed powers of resurrection. On October 6, 1929, the Los Angeles Times broke the story of the exhumation of Willa's corpse. It also referred to the death of Francis Turner, the true story of which was now known. Francis Turner was the paralyzed sister of Margaret Sands, 
a cult member, but didn't seem to have herself been a member. A shabbily constructed contraption of a platform and chicken wire, with a small space of only about a foot and a half, was constructed on a hillside. Frances Turner was laid on the platform, the chicken wire above her, and onto the chicken wire were placed hot bricks heated in the fire. This seems to have been a ritual of some sort meant to cure the woman of her paralysis. Cult members were asked to leave the compound during the ritual, which according to various accounts, lasted either a night or an hour. In any case, when the others were allowed back in their cabins, they were told that the woman, who unsurprisingly had died in the supposed healing ritual, had been healed and left the compound. The presence of an anonymous tipster had revealed that at least one cultist, though, had wondered exactly where Frances Turner had ever gotten to, since she hadn't been seen at all in the intervening year. Another dead cult member was Harleen Satoris. It was at first thought she may have been another poison victim when she died in 1928. She had died of some gastric ailment. There were plans to exhume the body, probably since gastric fever is a common cause of death resulting from arsenic poisoning, but she was either never exhumed or the test came to nothing because Satoris eventually disappears from newspapers. Also re-entering the picture was Frances Rizzio. Her husband Angelo, who had been a wanted man, was dead by this time, and so she was free to go, to go to the police with her suspicions about the whereabouts of Sam. She told the police about what her son and daughter had managed to find out. She added that cult members told her only that Sam was now a high priest and was, quote, invisible to less spiritual eyes. The statement of a former member, a pharmacist named Eleanor Sandrosky, was given to investigators on October 12th. Sandrosky said that in August of 1924, a time that would coincide with the apparent disillusion of Sam and Ruth's marriage, quote, she asked me if I could give her some poison that would not, would not leave a trace, such as in the body of a drowned man, and I told her that I could. When she sent one of the members to our store, however, I sent back a brown-collared bottle of water, and I didn't hear anything more about it. I quit the cult shortly afterwards. She said May claimed that she wanted to use the poison in a ritual to make Sam more amenable to the Great Eleven. She was to sprinkle the poison on the ground, and Sam was to walk through it barefoot, chanting, I am a dead man. Ruth's other ex-husband, Jack Rickenball, was at first thought to be missing, but later turned up having been working at a lumber camp in Montana. And then there were the isolated, random stories. The time Merritt Woodell was told that it was the will of God and Gabriel that he let Ruth shoot him in the foot, and he did, even though there was no further justification, no real reason why, just because. The time in 1925 that a metal box was found in Topanga Canyon. The box contained love letters and photographs chronicling May's affair with the Washington lumberman Fremont Everett. The time Jenny Blackburn was, for whatever reason, chained to a bed. Yes, I was padlocked to chains in a house on North Vermont Avenue, she told police. But during that time, I never was happier. The angel Gabriel finally released me, that is, spiritually. I had the keys to the padlocks. The chains didn't hurt and they were long enough to let me get downstairs. My concord of the musical scales called for me remaining at my point, 
and the angel told mother when to open the locks. The time in 1928 when May led several cult members, accompanied by two mules named the Jaws of Death, to stovepipe wells in Death Valley and then back to the Santa Susana colony. Once back in Simi Valley, David Thompson, the only black member of the cult, was ordered to slaughter the two animals. This pilgrimage and sacrifice was somehow said to symbolize, quote, the biblical victory of David over Goliath. There were criminal cases in which the Great Eleven supposedly figured. One was the supposed poisoning of Sam Rizzio. Another was the mysterious disappearance of a woman named Louise Voltz. She and her husband Ernest were German immigrants and had two sons. On the evening of February 3rd, 1927, Ernest and the sons were out doing some chores on their farm near Santa Susana. Other accounts say near Somis, several miles further west. It was raining when they returned to the house after about a half hour, and Louise was gone. Ernest Voltz recounted how his wife had what he termed a rain complex and would often go outside during a downpour. As her sweater was missing from the house, he assumed this is what she was doing. But despite days of fruitless searching and the hiring of a private detective company, she remained unfound. Ernest Voltz died on November 28, 1937, never having found Louise. Oddly, her will also vanished. The disappearance, however, was likely only ever connected to the Great Eleven due to the fact that it took place in Santa Susana, if indeed it did. Another connected to the cult for reasons I really can't fathom, other than the police's notion that it had been committed by a cult, was a particularly gruesome death that took place in Westminster, near Huntington Beach. The location could be another reason it was connected, since Huntington Beach was the location of the oil fields May managed to get Clifford Dabney to give to her. On October 6, 1929, two hunters, H.E. Bracey and E.E. Davis, were making their way through a marshy area when they discovered signs of a violent struggle at a chicken coop on the Dieter Ranch. Blood was splattered across the fence and into the trees. There seemed to be marks from bullets or knives on some of the boards nearby. In the center of the coop lay the body of a man about, about 5 foot 10 inches in height, wearing gray pants, brown shoes, and a brown shirt. A blue coat and green hat lay on a nearby log. It was estimated that the body had been lying in the coop nearly three weeks before found. Cause of death seemed to be a heavy blow to the neck. The victim's heart, left hand, and left eye were missing, and there appeared to be a series of incisions on the victim's chest, as well as a piece of flesh cut away, as if a tattoo was removed. Most gruesomely of all, it seemed for all the world as if a piece of dynamite or some other explosive had been placed into the space where the removed heart had been. Police went through several potential identities, including Henry W. Balcom of Huntington Beach, Leslie Dickerson of Whittier, Paul Booker of Huntington Park, and finally Lewis Maple of Dinuba, but all came up blank. The last tantalizing clue, if clue it even was, was on October 29th, when the Sacramento police received in the mail a small earthenware jug containing a human heart. But back to October 6, 1929, it was on that date that May Otis Blackburn and Ruth Wheeland came forward and voluntarily turned themselves in. 
Meanwhile, Clifford Dabney was getting death threats from other cult members. As a result of this, Detective J.A. Letterman was assigned to him as a bodyguard. Another member of the Great Eleven, Jenny Toy, had joined him in seeking damages against Mayotis Blackburn. October 16th proved to be an eventful day. Three of the grand theft charges against May were dropped. Ruth was released from prison, as were William and Martha Rhodes, once doctors announced that they had detected no poison in Willa's body, and were satisfied that the parents had not murdered her, which had been a theory. Based, probably, on Martha's insistence on referring to her daughter's death as a, quote, sacrifice. On October 22nd, Coroner Frank Nance confirmed the cause of death as being from an abscessed tooth and not diphtheria, as Martha was claiming. The arrangements for Willa's funeral could now be made, with Martha Rhodes asking if the seven dogs could be reburied with her daughter. This was denied. Willa Rhodes is buried at the Woodlawn Cemetery in Santa Monica with her parents and another adopted daughter, Viola Stevenson. On October 30th, a decision was made to release May Otis Blackburn on $10,000 bail. She was formally arraigned on charges of grand theft of $28,000 on, on December 4th. Six days later, she pled not guilty. The trial formally began on January 14, 1930. Roy P. Dolly represented Clifford Dabney and Jenny Toy, with Thomas W. Cochran defending May Otis Blackburn. Deputy District Attorney Vernon L. Ferguson led the prosecution. Judge Charles W. Frick presided over the trial. From the outset, the prosecution aimed to show that the Great Eleven was only a money-making scheme. Cochran's defense, meanwhile, was that Dabney and Toy's lawsuits amount, amounted to buyer's remorse and that they had willingly made any donations to the church. If Clifford now balked at the amount of money he had donated, well, that was on him. On March 2, 1930, though, the jury ruled in favor of Dabney and Toy. May Otis Blackburn was convicted on eight of the counts and was ordered to return $30,000 to Clifford Dabney. She was also ordered to return the lease to the Huntington Beach oil fields. May was held in Los Angeles County Jail, pending an eventual transfer to San Quentin. The cult vacated the Santa Susana colony, and moved their high temple into Glengarry Castle, a formidable structure that once stood at the corner of Argyle and Franklin Avenues in Hollywood. The sign out front proclaimed it to be the home of what was termed the Church of the Divine Science of Joshua, the branch, the headstone of the corner. This was the Great Eleven in all but name, with the name having presumably been altered to avoid association with the recent negative publicity. Cochran appealed May's conviction, however, in the following months. His first attempt was denied, but the second was granted on April 20, 1931, and heard again by Judge Frick. This time, May was acquitted, and the prior conviction overturned. Although when I first heard it, I couldn't believe she had been acquitted, on reading the reasoning behind it, I agree with the points made by Cochran. First was, as he said in the first trial, the donations were voluntary, and the cause for lawsuit amounted to buyer's remorse for the fact that Dabney had donated more than he was comfortable with. Second, it was judged that since May seemed to truly believe the doctrine of the Great Eleven, one couldn't really classify it as a scam. It was simply a religion, 
strange and bizarre as it might seem. Third, that the judge in the first trial had failed to properly give instructions to the jury. If the money was used for the upkeep of the order and the expenses of the members, she would be found not guilty. It was only if they could find that the monies were used by May herself that they should find her guilty. Fourth, and most significantly, that the prosecution had erred by allowing testimony about the alleged poisoning of Sam Rizzio, the entombment of Willa Rhodes under her parents' home, and other things, when these were actually completely irrelevant to what she was actually on trial for, even though they could possibly have resulted in criminal charges on their own. Soon after May was acquitted, a previously missing cult member named Addie McGuffin turned up. She joined several other members, including Winifred Banks, Florence Dingman, and Mr. and Mrs. Floyd Miller, who were mentioned as missing in the initial press reports, but turned up eventually. The Great Eleven still had a claim on the Santa Susana colony, although the land had been bought by Dabney. They moved back to the colony. By 1933, May still hadn't paid the Hammond Lumber Company for, the, for providing the wood used to build the cabin, and was sued for a second time. In 1932, Ruth formally divorced Sam Rizzio, although he hadn't been seen for nearly a decade. She remarried to a man named Jack Gray. In the early 1950s, she divorced Gray and remarried her fourth husband, a man named Lucky Williams. Around the same time, in 1951, May Otis Blackburn died. She is buried in Valhalla Memorial Park in Hollywood, along with her mother, Walter, and Ward Blackburn. The last vestiges of the cult fell apart upon her death, although it sort of continued in a number of books written by her daughter. Ruth died in 1978 and is buried in Mount Vernon Memorial Park near Sacramento. Neither Sam Rizzio nor Louise Volz were ever found. The victim of the murder in the Huntington Beach chicken coop was never identified. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. And photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarknessPodcast at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. There's links to all these pages in the show description as well. So, till next time, this is Andrew, signing off.
This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.